have you ever watched a sporting event where an athlete just kind of gets caught in between? You know, maybe, maybe a baseball game, right? And there's a base runner, and he's in between two of the bases, and he's not really sure, does he keep on running forward, or does he retreat and run backwards? Maybe it's a basketball game, right? And uh, a player, he jumps up, and he's not really sure, do I shoot or pass? And there's just like kind of that awkward moment, and you can kind of see it playing out. Maybe, maybe in gymnastics or figure skating or something, and there's an athlete about to do some kind of jump or twist or turn, and you can almost see the wheels spinning in their head, like, do they have enough momentum? Can they do this? And it's always an awkward thing, you know, to be caught in between. And, of course, you know that because you've been there, right? Maybe you've been in between jobs, and you know that feeling. Maybe you've been in between an argument between family or friends, and you just kind of feel caught in the middle. Maybe you've been in between like a big decision and you're not sure, should I do this or should I do that? It's always a little bit uncomfortable to be in between. And you know what? As Christians, in many ways, we live life in between. Because while right now, because of Christ's death and resurrection from the cross, we've been freed from the power of sin, and yet we still live life with the presence of sin all around us. There is this already not yet component to how we live. At Dallas, we used to say a little bit like already, not yet. Some of the best theology you're ever going to get. Okay, so that, that's just kind of how it is. It's how we live right now. So we're embarking on a new series where we really just kind of want to ask the question, how do we live in between? How do we live in between sinner and saint? How do we live in between God and Caesar? How do we live in between the, the questions and the answers, the promise and the promised land, be, in between knowing and doing? Uh, and so that's, that's where we're jumping in. One of the shows that I enjoy watching is The Food That Made America. I don't know if you've seen it. It's really kind of engaging. It's interesting because they tell us how we got the food that we got, and they even kind of go through the companies that made these foods and, uh, and some, of the, some of the rivalries that developed. And so you see the rivalries between Coke and Pepsi, Hershey's and Mars and Burger King, McDonald's and things like this. And also, you see how things were made. And before the FDA was in existence, you know, people passed all kinds of stuff off as food. Hey, oh, this is healthy, and they made all kinds of claims, too. Yeah, eat this, and you'll be great. You don't even know what it is that you're eating. If it's rotten, spoiled, what? And you couldn't really see, the, like, the packaging. The way they packaged all food back then, you couldn't see into it to what you were getting. So one company capitalized on this, Heinz. So Henry Heinz developed ketchup in 1876, and at first it wasn't selling too good. And then he had this idea what if we put it into like clear jars and everyone can see just the purity of the ingredients, the goodness of the ingredients? Well, he did, and it took off, obviously. And so it just went exponential, uh, the, the sales of ketchup. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians to a church that struggled with arguments, with disunity, with bitterness, uh, they really struggled to live their calling as the church. This was a church that was caught in between uh, their identity in Christ and at the same time their entanglement with sin. And so Paul's writing to this church to express God's desire for purity, unity in the church today so that, so that the watching world would see just who the church is. It's not just like looks good on the outside, but at the core of who we are is ultimately Jesus. And so, as we still struggle 
being caught in between sinner and saint, 2 Corinthians still speaks. Let's go ahead, check it out. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 20. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 20. How do we live in between sinner and saint? The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not, what, what, and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul wrote First and Second Corinthians to the Corinthian church uh, to help them understand really the authentic nature of what it means to be a disciple. Because they were struggling with what does it look like to be a follower of Christ? They had some misunderstandings along those lines. And so in these letters, part of what he's doing is he's just breaking it down and saying, okay, here's who God is. Here's what he's done. Therefore, here's who you are and what you are to do. And really, this is one of those sections, and he's writing to the church, and he's basically saying something that we say all the time, that right thinking produces right living. And so that's what he's getting at. Here's how you think rightly, and then when you think rightly, this is going to impact how you live. And so he says, here's what you need to know. And so this is where he starts in First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians 5. He starts by saying, this is who, this is who you are. And he says, you're, you're not just like your body now, is just an earthly tent. Because one day, if you're in Christ, you will have a heavenly dwelling place that's in a building not made by human hands, right? But it's made by God. It'll last forever. And then he says, but at the same time, I recognize that there's struggles here on earth. There's difficulty. There's pain. There's tribulation here on earth. I get all that. And so he's like, but you, this is why you live life expectant of what's to come. You live life with a worldview that takes the future into account. And so it changes your perspective on how you live. Because yes, right now you still struggle with sin, but you have been identified with Christ who has freed you from the power of sin in your life. So therefore, live lives to please God. 
How do you do that? He says, walk by faith, not by sight. Be full of good courage. And so that's how he's starting the letter. That, that's kind of his introduction into this chapter. What he's doing is he's highlighting the paradox in which we live, right? This tension with which we live, kind of in between sinner and saint. The redeemed people made fit for heaven can still struggle with sin here on earth. And so after that, he launches into the passage that we just read, and he shows us first that he's lived it. He says, hey, th- this, is how, this is how it's changed my life, and this is how it's changed the lives of those I'm discipling. And so he's going to use the term we quite a bit. And what he's saying is, hey, what Christ has produced in me, this is the desired outcome for all Christians. This is what I want to be true for you, too. That you would have this fear of the Lord, and that fear is this reverential awe of who Jesus is and what he's done. And it's a theme throughout Paul's letters that God has most fully demonstrated his love for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And because of that, it compels the Christian to live a life wholly dedicated to God. You see, who God is, what he's done, that tells us who we are and what we are to do. Meaning, purpose, your raison d'etre, your reason for being, it all stems from God, not external circumstances, not how you're feeling. You know, I tell you all the time that the world will lie to you. The world lies to you and tells you who you are. Hey, this is who you are. This is who you are. This. The world always gets it wrong. The one who made you defines you. And so God tells us who we are. And so here, Paul, he's trying to persuade the Christian church of their missionary identity and their missionary calling, that who they are precedes what they do. And at the same time, he's trying to convince them that I'm already that. Like, this is how I live. And so he's, he's saying, hey, I know that we live, that's me and the guys I'm discipling, we live lives like that are open before God that God finds no fault in, that we're, we're approved before God. He says, and I hope that would be true in your conscience too, that you'd see this too, that this is how we're living and this is who we are. Why is he saying that? Because the church at that time, the Corinthian church, they're kind of wondering about Paul. They're looking, about, they're looking at Paul and they're kind of confused. Can we trust this guy? Is this guy legit? And one of the main reasons they're having issues with him is they look at all the stuff that's going on in his life. And they look at the struggles, and they look at the, tempta- the, the, the persecution, the tribulation, everything he's experiencing. And they're thinking, you know, we want a strong leader here in the Corinthian church. And this guy, I don't know, he doesn't look so strong. I would think that a guy who's approved by God, his life would be a lot smoother than that. And so this is the tension that they're struggling with. And Paul's writing, and one of the things he's telling the Christians in, in, Corinthian, in Corinth is, listen, God's strength is made perfect in weakness. You know, part of the secret of Paul's ministry success was all that pain, all that tribulation, all that hardship that he had to endure. Paul reminds the Corinthians in these letters that when Christ died for all people, that all those people now must die themselves. Not a physical death, uh, necessarily, though many would die for Christ, but a spiritual death. Because you're no longer living for yourself, you're living for God. And he talks about crucifying self. I mentioned the German church earlier. One of the German theologians at that time in the 1930s was a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
Okay, and Bonhoeffer, he was one of the leaders who said, listen, churches, we got to stand up against Hitler because what he's doing is terrible. And he was actually in New York City at the time. He was studying here in America. His life was smooth. His life was good. He's getting a good education. But he loved Germany. He didn't make an idol out of Germany. He just loved God's vision for Germany. And so he says, no, no, I've got to go back because the church needs to wake up to what's happening here. And so he goes back, and he's able to get 3,000 churches, really. And one of the things, one of his messages to to the churches at that time was this, accept the call to come and die, because there will be persecution in this life. And so he said things like, uh, not to speak is to speak. Not to take action is to take action, right? If you do nothing, you support the madness, And so you saw what happened with the Holocaust. Uh, By the way, do you know the state of the church in Germany today? It's tragic, really. There's the the state church in Germany. About 65% of Germans uh, are a part of the state church that preach a false gospel. Less than 1% of Germans identify with the free church that preaches the true gospel. Why is that? Because in the hour of need, the church just sat back. So I'm not going to pick sides. I'm just, I'm going to stay in our lane because, you know, God has this fear. What's Paul telling the church? God's over it all. He's Lord of all. Wake up. Take the power and presence of Jesus into every sphere of society, into every corner of culture. And so this is what Paul is doing. And he's suffering incredibly because of it. But you know what he would write to the the Corinthians? At the end of 2 Corinthians, he wrote this. He says, I delight in weakness. I delight in hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How do you live in between sinner and saint? Well, you don't live for yourself, okay? For Bonhoeffer, it meant leaving leaving America and going to Germany. And for us, it's going to mean some hardship, Okay, as culture increasingly tells us, just stay in your lane. You cannot just stay in the lane, right? You must speak. You must act. And so when you suffer, though, don't you understand? That is when Christ in his power is most magnificently displayed. Paul is able to say, I delight in struggles because then, then God's power can be seen. And don't you know that's true? I mean, when you see someone suffering Christianly and they're enduring all kinds of pain and all kinds of hardship and all kinds of tribulation, and yet there's still joy, and yet there's still this peace that passes even our ability to understand, like, how do you have peace in this? And there's still a love for God and a love for others? Well, it causes people to stop and take note and wake up. So what, what is it that you have? And then Paul says, it's all about relationship with Jesus. You know, it's the same thing today. When you suffer Christianly, when you endure hardship Christianly, not just because stuff is happening to you, but because you are living your lives for the sake of others, people stop and notice. You say, what's going on? Nobody lives like that. Nobody would endure this for other people. I mean, you just go home and be quiet, and you know, your life would be easier. But yet you go, people take notice. This happens because our worldview changes. Paul writes, hey, we don't regard others based on the flesh. What's he saying? Now we regard others spiritually. And so when he says based on the flesh, he's talking external stuff. 
We don't, we don't regard others based on how they look, how they live, how they act, how they feel. I don't know. We regard others based on their relationship with Jesus. Do they have one? Okay, what do we call them to? Do they not have one? What do they need? They need a relationship with Jesus. Regard others based on their spiritual needs. And this is what Paul did. He went to those who mistreated him. He went to those who insulted him. He went to those who imprisoned him. He went to those who would abandon him. And he went to these people who lived really morally filthy lives. Like, why do you, why do you engage that mess? Why are you hanging out with those people? They're kind, they're kind of nasty, ugly, dirty people, you know? Like, look at how they're living. And Paul engages it, and he goes to it. Why? Because he doesn't regard people based on how they treat him. He doesn't regard people based on how they act. He regards people based on their need for God. And then he says something really interesting. He says, you know what? We actually used to regard Jesus based on the flesh. And what he's saying there is, any Jew would understand this, that as a Jew, if you regard Jesus based on the flesh, he died on a cross. To die on a cross, Deuteronomy tells us, is a cursed death. And so here's Jesus making these messianic claims, and now he dies this cursed death. And Paul's basically saying, hey, I used to regard him based on the flesh. I'm looking at this. Here's a guy who's making all these great claims to be the Messiah, and he's dying on a cross? Yeah, right. That's a joke. Like, he just proved to be what a charlatan he is. And so that's how he's regarded him. And by the way, the worldview of that day, any, any Jew, they would have thought the same thing. That's regarding Jesus based on the flesh. But then what happens? Huh. Well, Jesus meets Paul on the Damascus Road, and it changes everything because Paul has an encounter with the risen Christ. He says, oh, Jesus is alive? This changes everything. Now all of culture, all my whole worldview has to be sifted through the lens of Christ. And so what does that do? That means everybody I meet has to be sifted through the lens of Christ. We no longer regard people by worldly standards, but by their spiritual need. Listen, this is really hard for us because we don't even regard ourselves based on our spiritual need very often. You know, the temptation, even in the church, is to regard ourselves based on, based on worldly standards, not our relationship to Jesus. Let, let, let me uh, show you how this works, okay? Let's say this afternoon, uh, you go home, and you get in a, in a big-time argument, okay? Maybe with a family member, maybe with a friend, with someone, all right? And during that argument, you just get heated. You say all kinds of nasty things, all kinds of ugly things. I know this is totally out of your character. You'd never do it, but let's just say, okay, it happens, right? And you're saying all this mean, ugly, nasty stuff. And then, you know, you get away alone for a little bit, and you're thinking, man, I shouldn't have said all that. That was really wrong of me, really mean of me. I can't believe I did that. But let me ask you a question. In that moment, when you're saying all the mean stuff, all the ugly stuff, all the nasty stuff, are you righteous? In that moment, when you're saying all the mean stuff, all the ugly stuff, all the nasty stuff, are you holy? In the moment, when you're saying all the mean stuff, all the nasty stuff, all the rotten stuff, are you redeemed? Understand, a lot of times we think that in that moment, when we're saying all that mean stuff, all that nasty stuff, all that ugly stuff, well, I'm not righteous. I'm not holy. 
God must be so frustrated with me. I just fail over and over. I'm saying all this stuff. Do you understand? That is denying the gospel. We sang it this morning. Our righteousness is not our defense. If that's it, we're toast. It's not our righteousness. We say our holiness comes from Christ, as we just sang, right? Because it's his righteousness. It's his holiness. And so he covers, he gives us. This is the, this is the good news of the gospel. That it's not that you have to work hard enough and God say, okay, now you're doing it. I'm really proud of you now. Oh, man, you just blew it there. Well, there is your righteousness. No, no, no. That denies the gospel. If you think that your righteousness is dependent upon how you live, you do not believe the gospel. Because the gospel tells us that it is Christ's righteousness. That it is his righteousness that is imputed and given to us. So that even in that moment, when you say those nasty things, those rotten things, those horrible things, you are still righteous because it's not your righteousness. You're simply living a lie in that moment, right? So if, if all of that didn't make sense, let, let me break it down one more time, okay? Let, follow me on this scenario. Let's say that right after our gathering here that I leave, I take off my wedding ring, and I just go out and I start telling people, I'm not married, and I'm living like I'm not married. I'm doing all, all kinds of things. Now, am I still married? Yeah, I might not be married for long, but in that moment, I'm still married, right? Now, if you saw me doing that, like, what kind of friend would you be if you just came up to me and said, Steve, you just do you, man. You have fun. You just live it up. You'd be a really rotten friend, you know? I mean, you'd be really terrible. No, no. What I would need in that moment is someone to come to me and say, Steve, you're living a lie. You're married. Return to your wife. Love your wife. Right? In the moment, I'm living a lie. You see, sometimes in the moment, we buy into the lies of the world and we live a lie. Now, what Paul is saying here, what he's getting at, is that if we regard ourselves based on the flesh, we're all really lousy Christians because none of us can measure up. None of us have an inherent righteousness. We all need an imputed righteousness. The good news of the gospel is that while we were yet sinners and could not measure up to the standards of God, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so that when the father looks to us, he doesn't, he's not looking for our righteousness. He sees the righteousness of the son, Jesus, who we've been clothed in. When you try to measure up to his standard, you will fail. And at the same time, you deny the gospel. And what you are turning to are the chains of legalism. And the chains of legalism says you can live the perfect life all by yourself. You can't. Okay, you just can't. Jesus said it this way. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The chains of legalism, the yoke is very hard. And the burden, everybody crumbles underneath it because no one can measure up. How do you live in between sinner and saint? Well, you release the weight of performance. You release the weight of performance. It's not, it's not about how good I can be. You release the weight of performance and you embrace your identity in Christ. And this starts from understanding God's identity. Let me show you this. 
God's identity, what he does stems from who he is, okay? So you understand God loves you, right? But God loves you because he is love. It's not that, okay, he demonstrates love here, and he demonstrates love here, and he demonstrates love here, and he demonstrates love here. That's fine, but it's more than that. Do you see the difference between simply demonstrating love at different times and actually being love? Sometimes we think that God simply demonstrates love and that he's not love. And so, yes, he demonstrated love when he sent Jesus, but how can he possibly love me now that I've done this rotten thing? Right? Do you see the conundrum there? God is love. Therefore, everything he does is loving because he's perfectly consistent. And so even in his justice, even in his wrath, it's all loving because he is love. Even, even when that love might not make sense to us, he's still love. And what he does is loving because it's who he is. Sometimes we live a lie because who we are does not get expressed in how we live because on this side of heaven, we're inconsistent people. I don't always live it consistently. That's the good news of the gospel that Jesus did. And so we get his righteousness. Now, we've mainly talked about the chains of legalism. There's also, you can jump to the other side of the spectrum, and some people think like this. Well, all I need is a relationship with Jesus. You know, he'll, he'll say, I'm good, and I get my get-out-of-hell-free card, and I can go on living however I want to live. I can be Lord of my life and still do whatever it is I want to do. I've just said, you know, I believe, and that's good. Well, Paul's addressing that too. Because Paul comes back and says, no, 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 your identity dictates how you live. And if your motivation is simply to avoid hell, well, you're missing the relationship. On one end, you miss the relationship because you're just trusting in yourself and how you can perform. That's legalism. On the other end, you miss the relationship because you're saying, well, I just want to get out of jail free card, but I really want to live life how I want to live it. No, no. That's still all you. You miss the relationship on both ends. Paul says, hey, a relationship with Jesus impacts everything. So who are you? You're a new creation. You've been reconciled to God. Now that you're a new creation, now that you've been reconciled to God, who are you? You are ministers of reconciliation. You are ambassadors of Christ. You take the good news of the gospel. You take the power and presence of Jesus into every sphere of society, into every corner of culture. Everywhere you go should be marked by Jesus. If nowhere you go is marked by Jesus, you might be missing the relationship, okay? This is where he's going. And notice, the motivation for all of this is not that you win God's favor, not that he looks at you and says, oh, I love you more. He cannot love you more. He loves you perfectly right now. The motivation for all of this is the relationship that you share with Jesus because you understand, while I was dead in my sin, he allowed his only son to be that sin for me, to take that punishment for me. And then more than that, more than simply erasing our guilt, he gives us his righteousness. And anybody who would do that for you, I want that relationship. I want to invest into that. I want to, I want to know him more. I want to serve him. And now I, I, I'm privileged to be 
his ambassador. I'm privileged to be a minister of reconciliation on his behalf. I mean, you take that into everywhere you go. You find your motivation in your relationship with Jesus. You know, one way that really shows up, as we see it in Paul's life, is when stress hits, when hard times come, when difficulties come, when tribulations come. Because you know what we do sometimes? Right, all the hard times come, the difficulties come, whatever, and what do we do? Well, sometimes we drink too much. Sometimes we eat too much. Sometimes we, we gossip too much. I want everyone else to hear about how bad all this is. Sometimes we just isolate ourselves. So, I just got to get away from everybody. Right? And so we, we, we try to find this satisfaction. We try to find this peace in all these other places. And so I look at this in my own life. I'm like, how is it that I can be like a 40-something-year-old man and still like struggle with food or struggle with being heard or struggle with control? And in those moments, it's the relationship with Jesus when he comes and he just reminds me, no, Steve, you're loved. You're heard. I'm in control so that you don't have to be. You can find your satisfaction in me. You can find your worth in me. You can find your value in me. This is what he does for us. Paul prayed that the church would be filled with the fullness of God now. That was his prayer in Ephesians 3, that the church would be full of all the fullness of God here and now. It's not an eschatological prayer for the future. It's here and now. Because instead of being motivated by our relationship, sometimes we find our motivation elsewhere. And he's saying, no, no, no. I want all of, all of life to be full of the presence of Jesus. You want a life of fullness? You, you want a life of satisfaction, of being heard? then you allow Jesus to be in control. You don't live for yourself. You release yourself from the weight of performance and you find your motivation solely in your relationship with Jesus. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you are indeed Lord of all. God, may you be Lord of our lives. Every sphere, every corner of our lives, may you be Lord. God, help us just to release the weight of performance, not to regard ourselves based on worldly standards, but regard ourselves simply with the worldview of your son, Jesus, and find our identity in who he is and what he has done. And God, may that motivate us then to live the life that you call us to live as ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors for Christ. Heavenly Father, we recognize we need your help for this. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.